Let us pray. Our loving Heavenly Father, Lord, we <clears throat> ask that your Holy Spirit would be with us, Lord, in the same way that you were with the apostles, so that we too can process your word and allow it to shape us, to shape our thinking and even our actions in the days to come. So may the words of my mouth and the meditations of each one of our hearts be acceptable and pleasing to you, our rock and redeemer. All right. Today, we embark on a new journey through the book of Acts this time. I have no idea how long this journey will take us, but we are going to journey through the 28 chapters of uh, this book. Now, this book was written as a second part to the narrative of the Gospel of Luke, who was a physician and, an, uh, and a companion to Apostle Paul through most of his journeys. In the opening verse of this book, the author refers to his first book that he wrote concerning everything about Jesus Christ and what he did and taught. You will notice some similarities between the introductions of the Gospel of Luke and the, um, and, and the book of Acts. For example, both these books are dedicated to Theophilus. It's a Greek term for lover of God, but it doesn't mean that it's a general term. It, 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 most scholars believe that this was an actual person. Um, we don't know who who Theophilus actually was, but we believe that it is uh, a patron of Luke, somebody who paid for the expenses of writing most of these uh, two volumes. <coughs> Another connection that we see between the two books um, is that as an introduction to this book, we have a super crisp one-line summary of the previous book, the book of, of Luke. And it goes like this, and he says, in my first book, I told you, Theophilus, about everything Jesus began to do and to teach until the day that he was taken up to heaven um, give, after giving his chosen apostles further instructions through the Holy Spirit, end of quote. With that summary, he gets into the meat of this record, which gives an overview of Jesus 40 days post his resurrection. Now during this period, Jesus was very much focused on, um, on the preparation of his disciples for the birth of the church. And so there are a few things that Jesus did and, and I wanna um, account for each of those things that he did. So the first thing that we see, um, Jesus did that is recorded for us in the first few chapters, uh, first few verses of chapter one of Acts is that he proved to them that he was alive, right? That's step one. And then they say that he talked to them about uh, the kingdom of God. And then he explained to them what their next steps were going to be. That they were supposed to wait uh, patiently and prayerfully in Jerusalem for the gift of the Holy Spirit that was to come upon them. And then you get to verses 6 to 11. 
this is where there is a focus on something that Jesus did that was very special, but is not recorded in any other gospel. Jesus' ascension into heaven. Now, it's good that we have these verses here because uh, three of the four gospels ends before any talk of the ascension, as you know. The only gospel that refers to the ascension is the gospel of John. And in that, there are three indirect references to Jesus' ascension, but no direct mention of it. So if you want to know about the ascension, it's right here in the, in the first chapter of Acts. And that's where we are going to focus a little bit of time on. Starting in verse 6, Jesus is seen with his disciples. And they are asking Jesus this question. Lord, has the time come for you to free Israel and restore our kingdom? You see, in this question, the apostles are still trying to understand Jesus' ministry. You see, from the beginning to the end, Jesus was always focused on teaching one thing. He was teaching about the kingdom of God, right? But even in these introductory verses in the opening of the book of Acts, we see that Jesus is trying, that the disciples, sorry, are trying to understand what Jesus means by the kingdom of God. Now, the disciples have seen the whole ministry of Jesus. They have seen his, his um, death. They have seen his burial. They have seen his resurrection. And they still don't get what Jesus means when he says the kingdom of God. That he keeps talking about. In fact, what they don't get is how does this kingdom of God that Jesus is talking about fit with the kingdoms of the world, right? They think in their mind, there's no way that Jesus can say that the kingdom of God is here and still that the Roman Empire can continue to occupy Israel. They think that those two things are completely incompatible. So they think that if Jesus is, is here and he's announcing the kingdom of God, that means in their mind, the kingdom of God is here and the Roman kingdom is out, right? But the problem is, they don't see any signs of the Roman kingdom being out, right? They are still very much present. They're still very much visible. And so that is why they come to Jesus and say, you've done all these amazing things. So is now the time when you're going to free Israel and restore your kingdom? In other words, this is an are we there yet question that comes out of the mouth of Jesus' spiritual toddlers. And to that question, Jesus then answers them um, in a way that they were not expecting. He tells them two things. He says, firstly, I want you to know this, that the timing of when God's kingdom will be fully established here on earth in a way that you won't see any other kingdoms, that's going to happen. But that timing is not for anybody but God the Father to know. So get that, folks. You're not going to know when that's going to happen. 
But before I move on, I want to just talk about this for a second. You see, if God is thinking that he needs to establish his kingdom and yet the time for that has not come, it is because there is a div divine purpose for this in-between time. God does not permit anything to happen without a strong purpose. You can ask the question, why was Jesus not born 500 years earlier than he was? Well, the answer is because there was a divine purpose. Why was Jesus not born later than when he was born? It was because there was a divine purpose. Why is Jesus' coming delayed as it seems to be in our minds? Because there is a divine purpose. You see, there's a, there's a divine purpose in when Jesus came. There's a divine purpose in when he will come again. And there's a divine purpose in everything that happens in between those two big events and everything that happens on earth from the beginning of time to the end of it. You see, and that's uh, an important thing for us to understand and a big lesson for every Christ follower. Every human being wants what they want now. But you know, the timing of everything that happens, even if it is God's will, there, it is not for us to know, but there is a divine purpose, even for the delaying of God's express will. But even as it is not for us to get what we want to happen now, even if, it, even if it is God's will, there is a purpose in that delay. And that is, God is telling us, and Jesus is telling his disciples, that while this event is going to happen, I want you to do one thing. I want you to wait now on God and to prepare for what God is about to do. And along with that waiting, Jesus tells his disciples that they will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes. That means even though the earthly kingdoms will remain here on earth for a bit longer, something new is going to be added to the mix. It is the Spirit of God, also referred to as the Holy Spirit. As a result, they will have special powers to be witnesses to Christ. That means within the earthly kingdoms, Christ's followers will witness to God's kingdom. And God's kingdom is nearby, but is not fully here now. And yet these witnesses, Christ tells them, you are not going to be limited geographically. You will be my witnesses in your hometowns of Jerusalem, in the neighboring towns of Judea and Samaria, and all the way to the ends of the earth. These three circles that Jesus describes, when he describes their, uh, their power to witness, is actually an outline of the book of Acts. Because in chapter 1 to 7, the focus is on the church that is gets, gets established in Jerusalem. And then 
from chapters 8 to 12, the focus is on the church that is established in Judea and Samaria. And from chapter 13 to the end of the book, all the way to 28, is um, a reference to the church that it gets established among the Gentiles um, in the Gentile world, ending with, the, uh, with, with Paul in Rome, which was the capital of the, the Gentile world and a symbol of the entire Gentile world. So after Jesus proves then his resurrection and tells the disciples to wait in Jerusalem in prayer, Jesus promises the disciples a new power, a new superpower, if you will, the power of God's spirit to become his witnesses to him everywhere from their hometown to their neighboring towns, all the way to the ends of the earth. Now, after this instruction, Jesus goes on to do a final show and tell with his disciples. You see, Jesus had kept repeating to everyone who would listen that he was sent to earth by his heavenly father and that he was the king of a heavenly kingdom, like no other kingdom that they had known of. Now you can repeat a claim like this till you are blue in the face, but people are not really going to get what you really mean by it unless they can see it with their own eyes, right? And therefore, in this final act that Jesus does on earth, Jesus in front of his closest disciples, after preparing them, ascends heavenwards and disappears in the clouds. And as the disciples stand there in stunned silence at such an incredible sight, two angels appear to them and say, men of Galilee, why are you standing here staring into heaven? Jesus has been taken from you into heaven, but someday he will return from heaven in the same way that you saw him go. At this point, the disciples understand that Jesus is not from here because they have seen it with their eyes. They have seen him go to where he is from. Now, when the disciples tell everybody that Jesus is from out of this world, they are testifying to what they have seen with their own eyes. Because now, as they recollect Jesus' words that he was sent from heaven, they can picture it in their minds. When they remember Jesus and the angels telling them that Jesus will return from heaven in glory, they can picture it in their minds as well. This is out of the world stuff, but it is real to Jesus' disciples now. So when you look at Jesus' preparation of the disciples for the birth of the church, you see him do four things. He makes it very real to them that he was somebody who has conquered sin and death by literally rising from the dead and proving to himself that he had risen. And then he proves to, him, to them that he is from heaven by actually rising up to heaven in front of their eyes. 
He tells them that one day he is going to be back from heaven just as they saw him go to heaven. And then he makes his teachings about the kingdom of God even more real to them by explaining it to them once again after his resurrection. And finally, he tells them that they have a task and they have a new superpower that's going to be added to them. Their task is to be a witness and they will have the power to do that, to witness to a kingdom that is out of this world even when the kingdoms of this world are still in control. So friends, what does this mean to us? Let me share three implications for each of us. The first is, uh, is that we have to have a clear understanding of who Jesus is. That is step one in Jesus' preparation of his disciples. If we are going to be Christ ambassadors, we need to be certain about everything about Jesus so that we can declare it with great conviction and authority. So Jesus took the trouble to spend time with his disciples even after his resurrection, proving his resurrection and also ascending to them, ascending to heaven in front of them simply so that they could speak about who he was with authority and conviction. Today, if the larger church is in a mess, it is because people are not willing to testify to the true authority and uniqueness of Jesus. There are churches that are growing by doing what God has really called them to do. But in the United States, they are in a minority. Many churches are growing by giving motivational talks, by presenting a message that is focused on what people want to hear rather than what God wants people to hear. This is not right, and those churches may prosper for a time, but a day will come where they will be empty and forgotten and irrelevant. If we want to serve Christ in the truest sense, we have to know Christ and to testify about who he is and what he has done for us and for them and for the world at large. When we can witness to Christ powerfully, amazing things will start happening in the church. The second implication I believe for us is that we need to tell people everything that we have heard about the kingdom of God. Why? Because Jesus spent most of his time before and after his death and after his resurrection teaching about the kingdom of God. The values of the kingdom of God are very difficult to understand and opposite to what the values of the world are. The church is the only place where the, king, where the values of the kingdom of God are practiced. It is the only institution that exists for honoring the king of the kingdom of God and for practicing and presenting its values. So our job is to live as ambassadors of God's kingdom and the kingdom um, uh, to the kingdoms of this world. 
Thirdly, our job is to pray and wait for the special empowerment to come from God to be his witnesses. Now, if you don't know Christ, then of course you need to wait for God's spirit to come on to you and, and you need to pray and wait for that. But if you are already Christ followers, you may say we already have the kingdom. So what do we need to wait for? And I would, I, I would say this. Every Christ follower does have a measure of God's spirit, the Holy Spirit in them. However, if we were to think of an analogy and think of our own spirits, right? Sometimes we are very spirited and have high energy levels and, um, and we are very enthusiastic about what we are doing. And at other times, we are not so energetic. We are subdued, we are down, uh, we are sometimes low and we just want to be in a corner and not actually see anybody, right? And that's part of the human condition. Our spirits ebb and flow and they, 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 they peak and they trough. But in those times when, we, when our spirits are down, that's really not the time where we are going to use to build relationships, right? Or connect with people or enhance the relationships that we already have. So, um, so here's the deal. I mean, that variation of our spirit is also the way God's spirit functions in our own lives. In our, in our low state, it is like we have a sign over our heads which says, keep away. And it's the same with God's spirit activity in our own lives. We receive a small measure of God's spirit as a token down payment when we accept Christ into our lives. But it is only when we allow God's spirit to operate in us in its full measure that we really can present God to those whom we are interacting with in a full measure. We want people to see more of God in us than they see on a normal basis. That is what was happening to um, uh, the disciples on the day of Pentecost. It was like a peak of the Holy Spirit functioning in them. Now, we will look at that more later, and that's what we're going to focus on um, the next time we get into the book of Acts. But to get to that level of God's spirit flowing in us and through us, we need to wait in prayer and ask our spirit to step aside and make room for God's spirit to flow in us in full measure. Actually, when our spirit is in full measure, we have very little room for God's spirit to operate. When our spirit is, is, uh, is, is broken in a sense and is, is small and, um, and, and weak, somehow God's spirit has more room to operate. It's very contrary to what we know of. But the point is that as we pray and as we um, allow God to come into our lives, we will, um, we, we will see our own spirit diminish and God's spirit flow in us in greater measure. And God and, and other people get to see that and we get to be God's witnesses. So if you want to see a new church 
burst into life. Three things are required, and that's what we have seen in our passage today. We need to know authoritatively who Christ is, as the first thing. Know whom you are called to witness to, and that's the second thing, who is our target um, that God is sending us to. And then finally, to, to prayerfully prepare for God's spirit to flow in us in full measure so that those whom God has called us to would be able to see God in us in full measure unmistakably and, and, and have them to answer to the witness that they have experienced through us. That is what we see happening in the book of Acts. And what we see everywhere where the church is bursting with life. So let us pray and wait for that moment when God will not just be whispering through us, but God will show himself through us in a powerful God-sized way in power and might and strength. Let us pray. Our loving Heavenly Father, Lord, we want to be your ambassadors. We want to be used by you in a big measure. And Lord, we pray that you would give us that, that, that understanding and that patience and that submission to your spirit, Lord, so that we can gather and wait for you to just burst forth in us. We don't want to quench your spirit. We don't want to keep you in a, in the, in the corner of our lives, in the corner of our, of our being. But we want to invite you into all of us so that you can flow freely through us. And when you do that, O oh Lord, people around us will see you operate in us. They will see you. And amazing things will happen, Lord through that. Lord, you have promised that, that you will give us the superpower, the superpower to witness to you. We thank you that you have used us for many years in being your witnesses. But we know that you have kept us alive and we are here still in your presence in this kingdom, in this world, because you still have work for us to do. You still have work for this church, for Argentine Mennonite Church to do. And so, Lord, we pray that you will continue to use us by filling us with this incredible gush of your spirit in a way that is unmistakable, that people all around us will see you operate in us and the church will burst forth with new life. So be with us, O oh Lord, and help us to wait for your spirit to operate in a way that only you can, in a magnitude that represents you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.